0: Today's episode is a little bit different as we have a singular bookend aka me Hannah as Lydia is currently quite unwell and unable to record. I'm sure you'll all join me in wishing that she gets better soon so you can have her back in your ears and I won't feel like my right arm is missing. (laughs) Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. Today's show is dedicated to our May book club pick, Scorched Grace. Scorched Grace is the first in an exciting new Queer Crime Series by Margot Dwighi. Set against the backdrop of a sticky, oppressive New Orleans, we arrive at St. Sebastian's, a Catholic school that begins to endure countless arson attacks, setting the local community and police department into a frenzy. Dissatisfied with the official response, Sister Holiday, a sardonic and headstrong nun, decides to take matters into her own hands. But before she can begin to tackle this case, she must reckon with demons of her own. Margot Dwahi is a Lebanese-American writer and poet, originally from Pennsylvania. She received her MA in Creative and Life Writing from Goldsmiths University of London and a PhD in Creative Writing from Lancaster University. As a poet, she's the author of three collections, Girls Like You, I Would Ruby If I Could, and the true crime poetry project, Bandit Queen, The Runaway Story of Belle Starr." Margot was a finalist for a Lambda Literary Award, Ascetica Magazine's Creative Writing Award and the Ernest Hemingway Foundation's Hemingway Shorts. Margot is a founding member of the Creative Writing Studies Organisation and an active member of Sisters in Crime and the Radius of Arab American Writers. Scotch Grace is her debut novel and the first publication from Gillian Flynn, and I am thrilled to have Margot joining me today. So, Margot, welcome to Power Bookends.
1: It is so wonderful to be here <laughs> and just to be in your space. And folks who read and think so deeply about books are why we write. There, you, you know, and I am that too. Before I was a crime writing, crime writer, or or someone who thought about plot and structure, I was a fan too, and, and and someone who takes books very seriously Mm. I think art can change culture it can change our culture of ourselves so this is really special and I'm so delighted and I feel very honored and lucky to be here so thanks no
0: I'm so delighted to have you thank you so much and I'm so excited that this is our May book club pick and I really hope that as many we can get as many listeners as possible reading this because it is so brilliant and yeah thank you for writing it So, we usually like to ease our interviewees in with our favorite question, which is what are you currently reading?
1: Well, I just finished it. So I don't know if this would really qualify, but the absolutely blistering wow. and brilliant my sister the serial killer. It's so, <laughs> it's so good. It's so and good and it's worth a reread, you know, if you have already read it, but yes. I, th- I you know, I just absolutely adore this space of the mystery of noir, of crime fiction and, you know, what what Braithwaite has done in this book is just expand and explode and shatter our notions of what even the notions of like a witty or or satirical take on crime fiction can be because mm-hmm. of the profound questions about family and sistership and loyalty and self-concept and how they all braid together is just so funny it's one of the funniest and deep Moving books that I've read, and and I like to traffic in that space too. You know, my my holy trinity, as it were, which is a bit sacrilegious, but my holy trinity is sad, sexy, funny. You know, so love (laughs) it. I I just think that's you know, or or sad, beautiful, funny, or sad, Mm -hmm. alluring, funny. You know, however you want to take that one one corner of the triangle. And I think that work like this, you know, I, tr- I, I just aspire to this greatness and and also intersectionality and the ways that we think about identity and the investigative method and all of that. So a lot mm-hmm. of that's in Scorched Grace, but I read widely and I, I love to be completely blown away and envious of the writing skills of peers and others, and also folks that have, you know, written 50, 60 years <laughs> ahead of me. And hopefully, you know, we all continue on this, this weird course and journey that we're all on as crime writers. But yes, yes. so my the serial killer just finished it recently. And you know, my TBR pile is is like a constant towering stack that's falling oh, over.
0: Oh, you and me both. You and me both. <laughs> my um, Sister the Serial Killer is such a phenomenal book. And I pretty much inhaled it on like one train journey it was a long train journey to be fair but I, <laughs> I read that so quickly I flew through it and just wasn't expecting it to just the roller coaster that it takes you on you know it, it gets so dark and then it's just so funny and you kind of you don't know what <laughs> you don't know what emotion is going to come out of you next and I and I just loved the the sister dynamic in that I'm one of four sisters so that was like perfect for me <laughs> I was like, please, can none of you become a serial killer? Thank you. <laughs> it just keeps it
1: so real. Like I love mm. what you say about not sure what emotion is going to tumble out of you next because that is so vital and it, it's so true to the authentic experience of being being a sister or having a sister who is both insufferable and who you would put yourself on the tracks for and literally risk either going to jail or some moral infraction that's just what it's like. And, and the way she narrativizes that tension and just again the humor, humor is seriously one of the funniest books that I have read in yeah. years. And, and yet it's this gruesome scenario. And and I again I, I aspire to that. And it's funny because with Scorched Grace, I've heard the whole gamut of wow, this is one of the grimmest, most ferocious dark books that I've read and also it's so funny. So I love that wild swing and I think everything in between is just fair game because that's just life.
0: (laughs) Yes, so true. And just because you've just been showing the amazing cover, before I ask about the inspiration behind Scorch Grace, just because you've just shown it to me, I have to ask about this cover because I am so shallow in the sense that I will happily pick up a book based on the cover and (laughs) (laughs) and I could not get over this cover it is amazing like I think it is one of my favorite covers of all time it's so good like what who came up with this what tell me tell me what was the concept what who designed it I need to know it is truly and I agree and I'm sure that you
1: know with zoom it's probably showing backwards or forwards or upside down but it's just (laughs) it's just The central motif, one of them in the book is stained glass and how it is both this cohesive experience of seeing as well as jagged and shattered and you can see both the narrative story and the union as well as the disharmony in the places that are cleaved and so then you have this figure of sister holiday as as an icon as iconic through you know this shady almost uh old school pi canonical hard-boiled sleuth or hard-boiled mystery or figure who's who's half shrouded and half alert and and sort of watching and then she has this lit cigarette which is a bit of middle finger, I must say. <laughs> but then you have this true and enduring symbol of her faith, her true faith, which is right over the heart center. And so you have a lot of the paradoxes that drive this investigator, this sleuth, this woman, this queer woman, this servant of, of something higher than herself. So you have a lot of the contradictions and the multitudes that that fuel this character and that cast suspicion upon her by all the people that are in her life. It was you know, created under. Under the shrewd artistic direction of Evan Gaffney, who is Zando Gillian Flynn Books' uh, art director, and the illustrator and designer of the covers, named Will Stalla, who has done a lot of the covers for Stephen King. He did he did John Grisham's recent cover. He's done Cory Doctorow. He's done a lot of the big books that you see. And I mean, as a and I say this with a lot of pride and a lot of humility and ownership that I'm. I'm a nobody, you know, until re- recently. Sort of making a big commercial break. I was writing in obscurity for about 20 years, writing weird poetry books and <laughs> strange hybrid things, and and just before the sheer love and passion and need and almost obsession with it. So to land, you know, this book with Gillian Flynn, and then to have someone like Will Stalla and Evan Gaffney working on this cover. They both read the book. They both, I think, are big fans of noir and and mystery and crime, and they. Want wanted to do something totally different than your typical a lot of there's a lot of themes and almost memes with crime mm. fiction covers and mysteries so they wanted to go completely in a different direction and this is also the first book in a series so something that could use bits of the visual vocabulary to mm. go through a series depending perhaps on color palette so you know a lot of the book is told right here on the cover <laughs> and it's really exciting to see it when you walk into a bookstore it'll never get old ever
0: I can imagine it's it's perfect it is just one of the most perfect covers I've seen and Lydia will be really sad that she's not here to tell this story but I will tell it for her (laughs) she went to one of her friends grandma's house recently and her friend's grandma is a Jehovah's Witness and Lydia takes a book everywhere with her just in case uh you know and then she went to pull it out and then realized oh the cover (laughs) don't know if this is a good idea and just slip right. it back into her right. right under the sweater Hide yes. it. <laughs> so yeah it's it is a really great cover and I loved yeah. I loved hearing you you say then about that you've been writing obscurely for 20 years writing weird poetry collections I mean I'm sure they're not weird <laughs> and I'm, I'm really eager to read them after reading this so it's it's just amazing I think for for any other writers that listen to the podcast for them to hear that you know these things sometimes do take time but you know you just need that that sort of one yes and it and it it will it will happen it can happen and I think you know for, for any creatives out there you know certainly like me and Lydia have said on the podcast before like we're both actors and it is just sometimes a waiting game and you can be so impatient but I think definitely your story of the being picked up and you're the first uh, publication of Gillian Flynn's books aren't you so like yeah. that's incredible it's huge <laughs>
1: it's a, it's unbelievable I and mean, it's surreal and I I would have been that person too that would sort of I, don't know, I got you, you get used to it in a way of either rejection or just that swimming upstream and and I think in terms of you know the acting world the writing world they're so similar whether it's screenwriting novel writing creative you know high experimental literary fiction Memoir, all all of it, without. 20 billion followers on social media or some kind of dynastic wealth mm. so that you know you're a trust fund person or something like that. It's a struggle. It's a schlep, it's a trek, you know, whatever that might mean for different people. If you have kids or family or an aging pet, or, you know, anything. There is a lot of hurdles that we have to overcome to do what we love. And in my case, you know, and I will now shout about this from every rooftop is that you just have to stay with it. And it might take 20 years, it might take two years. Good art will be seen because it's something that means something to you we all have our unique dna in my case lexical dna with my words in your case with the work you do as media and curator with your literary work and as well as acting we all have something true to us and so that is why i always fight to stay with it and never to give up and it might morph it might you know I'm, I was writing poetry exclusively for 15 years and then eventually it was getting longer and longer and longer and <laughs> I'm a huge mystery fan and I merged those worlds into Scorched Grace and this eventually this series of you know this queer devoted punk rock riot girl nun
0: so you know never never say never very true never say never <laughs> that can be the title of this episode (laughs) yeah (laughs) now I really want to hear more about Scorch Grace because I'm already loving hearing you speak about it I would love to know what the inspiration for Scorch Grace was and yes could you tell us a bit more about that and and why you wanted to make that move from poetry to fiction
1: yeah and poetry will always be that deep love it'll always be the heartbeat you know that are the first of the sequence and there is a sensibility as a place I go back to as a homecoming in a lot of ways. But I wanted to contribute something to this canon that I love so much and and also push against these notions of what the received canon is. So, you know, the in my case, I love the hard-boiled style of mystery storytelling that and if, if folks are listening right now and don't really understand what that term means, like I'll try to give a really quick definition of it is the way I understand it, which is a mystery that centers a figure who would be considered hard-boiled in the sense that they're hard-living, they have some hard-won wisdom, they're Hard to be around, and they maybe are hard drinking or hardly, you know, addicted to something that is outside of themselves. Mm. And they're quite stubborn. They have, uh, they call themselves a kind of a lone wolf. And really, this term was popularized by the Black Mask magazine short stories in which you have writers like Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammond, and, and then others, you know, in that lineage centering these private eyes who have their own firms or they're working on their own and they're solving cases usually for clients. And so that's a very, very, very general description of it. And you have other writers that take it in way different directions or take a it- component of it or one tenant of that and totally mess with it, put it in a blender and take it somewhere else. So for me, it's the sensibility of this person who they they know that the world is really screwed up and it's really broken and they actually are quite broken. And that's why you have a lot of humor in like, you know, very reflexive wisecracks. And, you know, you can, I'm sure we all know, we know people like this. And even to some extent, I have been like that where, something serious comes up and you get a joke in response. Mm -hmm. And usually that's because there's some kind of armor against some inner Mm. vulnerability or even inner terror. And I think that's, that's very compelling to me as a narratorial figure. Because you can get this person almost like plowing through the the narrative space to solve the mystery. And it's this internal, external mirroring where the clues, they're assembling the clues or they're reassembling them as they in turn figure out something about themselves or their own inner experience, whether they point to it directly or not. There's a lot of subtext in Heartboiled. And so I just love reading these stories. I love the old stories from the 20s, 30s, 40s. I love the the countercultural feminist intersectional uh, black excellence takes on them from Walter Mosley, Sarah Protti, and then the whole, you know, trajectory after that so, you know, I firmly try to root this in the hard-boiled school. We, we get into it in the second book in the series where she actually, you know, spoiler alert, but it's it's set up in the first book where she just actually does part-time gigs with, with a PI agency. Love um, but I wanted to balance that with someone who genuinely has this faithful, very unusual, strange relationship with her own faith mm-hmm. and her own identity. So none of that could really happen coherently or in a satisfying way in poetry or prose poetry had to be a novel has to be a crime fiction experience but to that extent i also tried to tread the template a little bit and keep it lyrical use some lyrical patterning queer it even queer the structure in the sense where you don't know exactly who holds the power where Mm -hmm. is there an unreliable narrator so taking very traditional forms of like a three-act structure for example and just weaving in you know motifs and in lyricism and even scripture verse or punk lyrics and and kind of trying to keep it a little transgressive. So all of that's just, you know, a lot of words to say. I knew I had to, to write a mystery novel, but I really <laughs> wanted to keep it. Just keep it in a space that felt unexpected to me as I, mm. which is why I took a long time to write. Cause I was like, what in the, what the hell is this? <laughs> Eventually I figured it out, but I just had, I wanted to kind of keep inventive, keep it inventive for my own self and for the characters, all of the characters too.
0: How long did it take to write? It took four years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah.
1: And, but it was living in my head for about maybe nine, you know, I had this this idea that I wanted to mm. make the figure of a, of a nun. I went to Catholic school. I, you know, a lot of my early teachers were nuns. They were all above the age of 80 and mm. 90. And I wanted to think about like a purpose-driven life or a duty-bound person who's like an investigator or these old school lone wolf, you know, unmarried dudes, you know, who are mostly in these early stories with the hats and the trench coats and the mm. cigarettes and make make her nun, you know, really recast this script as a totally unpredictable and strange, but like genuine and authentic person who just doesn't mm. fit one box or another. And so, you know, some people are like, what? When I try to tell them about the novel, I'm just like, just read it. <laughs> just give it a shot. Because and then I've had other people say like, oh, that's like, really doesn't, you know, she sounds like a mystery, even just in the description. I'm like, well, that's sort of part of the, the motor of it.
0: Yeah I think she's one of my favorite protagonists and I love what you said about her not sort of wanting her to fit into a box because you definitely get a sense of that and and I will be honest me and uh, Lydia we sort of hear crime novel and we're kind of like shy away from it it's not our usual go-to and it was weird that you mentioned uh, my sister the serial killer before because I remember reading that and loving that but most of the time when I think about crime fiction I think of how that genre and maybe it's just the the Books that I've come across but it feels very dominated by like straight white male stories and I really felt like you breathed new life into that genre and it was such an addictive read and I I mean you just the way that you examine like gender and race and sexuality and faith it was just such a compelling read and yeah just completely bow down to you for that <laughs> and obviously you've you've mentioned that that crime is something that you're you're drawn to as a reader what kind of crime were you going for like what would you kind of recommend to somebody that just thinks that that crime is dominated by these straight white male stories what would you sort of recommend
1: And it certainly still is, you know, if you look at any bestseller list, you'll still have some of those just touchstone names that reappear and... Mm. and no doubt, you know, they've got their bona fides and I've, I read and I'm amazed by their craft as well. But for me, you know, I, I do, I love that idea that a mystery is just this this promise to the reader that there is something to solve. You know, whereas you have in literary fiction, it's all, for, it's all up for grabs. You know, is it an oblique ode to indecision? Great. <laughs> is it a, an exploration of a day in the life of Clarissa Dalloway? using like, you know, neural pathway synaptic M80s or wonderful, you know, I love it all. But with with crime fiction, with mysteries, it's like, you know, a reader goes to the bookshop going to you go to the shelf or you go to the section you think you i want something that i want to be a part of Mm. so i love that i love how it is this this almost invitation to the reader to sort of step up and solve alongside of a detective figure whether it's the narrator whether it's a police officer whatever or in my in my case an amateur sleuth turned you know, part-time PI. So for me, I look to folks that are taking, they're bringing intersectional perspective into it. Mm-hmm. Like my sister, the serial killer, like Marcy Rendon, who is an indigenous crime writer. You know, Kelly J. Ford is Southern gothic with a lesbian twist in the U.S. And, you know, writers that are weaving together questions of self and questions mm-hmm. of power powerlessness, critique of institutions. And, you know, in the UK, it's just like, you know, brimming with just remarkable authors as well, you know, too many to name, but it's, for me, it's just that beautiful Venn diagram of like, yes, I get to solve a mystery or see Mm. if I can, because I love being feeling like an idiot at the end. You know, (laughs) you want to feel like, oh my God, how did I miss that? Or yeah, what's the sleight of hand that's actually happening here? And then, but also see a meditation on mm-hmm. family, you know, on sistership, on the patriarchy. Or, you know, in my case, I'm trying to examine, explore institutional corruption or the ways that we grieve and how we can be blindsided by the needs to belong where wherever that takes us. And also addiction and, and pain and just mm-hmm. resilience, you know. And, and I think noir offers us that, you know, it could be super bleak super grim, a lot of despair, but really they can be case studies in how we rise up and how we look for those pathways to resilience. So yeah, I mean, I can go on. Like, I'm just trying to think of who else I'm reading. S.A. Cosby, tremendous writer who wrote a book called Razorblade Tears. That was a New York Great Times title. bestseller. <laughs> oh, it's so good. You all, you'll love it. And it's about two fathers, um, recent ex-cons, one white, one black. And they're, they both get the news that their gay sons who were married to each other were murdered and so they have you know really nothing in common except that they were both in jail and they both had these sons that they rejected whilst they were alive and then they go on this path of vengeance to like rain down vengeance on who killed their boys and wow. and it is just it is like oh my god it's 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 so gripping and it's so brilliantly rendered and those are the kinds of crime stories that I can't get enough of because they give you these you know and Gillian Flynn says it herself they're almost like these Trojan horse uh frameworks or these interpretive mm. frameworks you get this great mystery you can even get a freight train of mystery and then like a real exploration a deep deep meditation
0: on something very profound I think maybe I've been giving crime fiction a, a <laughs> I've been given it a bad rap because <laughs> I didn't know all this stuff was out there. And now I'm like, okay, I'm ready now. I'm going to go order all these books. My TBR you pile is going to be, <laughs> what if you done, Margot? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: Guilty as charged. But you're right, though. They were, I think, really there's, you know, now I think the marketplace, which has been so dominated by profit mm-hmm. and margin and, and the real – urgent, urgent need to make your money back if you were to give a huge advance to some one of these big, huge heavyweights that we know, you know, and, and again, you know, you got tremendous writers who, who make the big bucks. But I think the marketplace is so smart now and Mm -hmm. and readers are so hungry for gripping new stories that push the boundaries and give us ways to see ourselves. So publishers are are really getting smart to that, hip to that as well and thinking, Mm -hmm. you know what, we can take, we can actually make the financial investment in some of these writers that may not be well known, but they're doing some really brilliant excavation and and offering readers something really compelling, gripping, you know, real rippers. So I think that it's, I do know, relatively kind of new.
0: So I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> I'm totally here for it. I mean, speaking of compelling and gripping, <laughs> We cannot speak about Scotch Grace without speaking about your incredible protagonist, Sister Holiday. Like I said, she's one of my favourite characters now and I'm so excited that there's going to be more books. And she's going to be in these books. She's still at the centre, isn't she? Oh yeah. (laughs) Okay, because I was like, for a second, I was like, wait... (laughs) Now the she's she's a very complex character and she likes to go from one extreme to the other. She's got a very complicated past, which you beautifully feed to the reader like a, a trail of crumbs. That I was I was willing to follow you wherever you were going to take me. I didn't know it was so unpredictable. I didn't know where her story was going to go. What had happened in her past. But there are, without giving any spoilers, there are reasons for why she is the way she is, like there is with any of us. How do you go about building a character like Sister Holiday? Did you start with with her backstory or did you just kind of start writing and find out new things about her along the way? It starts with the voice.
1: Sister Holiday's voice is the the alpha and the omega. And she's really different from me. And yet I, I feel, you know, I talk to her all the time. You know, it's a bit <laughs> schizophrenic in a lot of ways. There's a lot of you. <laughs> and I'm sure you know when you're when you're inhabiting the role of character as an actor or director, or screenwriter, any part of that ecosystem of storytelling. And you, know, you really do have to lock into the cadence, lock into the rhythm. Everybody has a different way of speaking. And so for her, the, the voice is everything. And then again, that is very hard-boiled in my opinion, where you just have have almost this, you know, someone just kind of puts you in a bit of a chokehold from the very beginning and grabs you by the throat. And for for this book and for indeed the series, Sister Holiday has a way of seeing the world and then telling you how she sees the world. So she gripes about her students. She complains mercilessly about them. And yet, you know, she's on this in, in this world, because she believes in the greater good. And she has this, um, you know, punishing way of, of lacerating herself and a lot of a lot of ways of beating herself up. And yet she's really uh, kind of egotistical. You know, she says that her wisdom holds a lot of grace, and she can do it better than anyone else. And only she can solve this and the police are useless. And, and Revo is too slow. But yet, you know, she warms up to her in the ways that, Sometimes, you know, good friends do and they love to razz each other and rib each other. And so her voice start, started it all. And in that, as you talk about the backstory, or I guess, you know, interestingly, I don't really believe in backstory. I feel like it's all story as long as it mm. does, it, it can never decelerate. You know, I really try to create a real pace with this book and moments that may feel as if they are just a touch less with less scrutiny. <laughs> or more fun in games, you know, some of the erotic scenes are like that, where you have, or perhaps the stories that may be told in a narrative present. And that's really part of the design where I, I kind of, it's almost like in the roller coaster where it's like, like, that as you're kind of going right up and then you have that free fall it's a part of that accelerate acceleration um palette where you have what's things that seem like they're a little slower kind of by design so her voice does that as well where it's almost like when you're sort of like yeah everybody gather around okay you know you're taking that beat really <laughs> that, that beat <laughs> you know or if i'm like about to tell you the person that i saw you'll never believe and it was, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's like, you know, to do that with words is really fun and interesting. And in my editor, Serena Kamath, is absolutely brilliant because she has that aerial view where she can see where there is a little bit of deceleration. We could tighten that up there. And Gillian herself, you know, who is... I think has the distinct honor of like she handed in gone girl almost completely done, which to me is like I can never get my mind around wow. that because you know that it takes such incredible risks with the storytelling. But mm. back to the to the voices is Sister Holiday's voice has to give you the contradictions of this character in a way that feel authentic, earned, and completely seductive in the in the sense that a friend of yours who's telling you about how they sabotage. Just about everything in their life and you just continue to go back to them and go back to them because then they, you know, give you the greatest hug or, you know, you have the the night of karaoke that will that you shut down the pub or whatever it is like the people in your life that are unforgettable and I try to create that with this character who, you know, is she's she's hurt and she hurts people She's flawed. She does. She says things that I would never say. She does things that I would never do. Because I think that's what creates memorable characters who you can really want to root for, even as you're like, how and why did you just do that? <laughs> and, you know, can be really problematic within the world that they've created for themselves. But nonetheless, you're like, okay, I see why. I see now why she's doing this. And for mm-hmm. me, with a series or someone who's investigating mysteries, and even can redefine the idea of crime, because I think that's for queer people. We've been cast suspicion. You know, we've been the source of a lot of criminality and suspicion ourselves. So I think it's it's about time that queer crime writers kind of get into the space and move around the pieces of the chessboard and and ask questions. And and really this is a book of questions as well as answers.
0: Absolutely. And she's she is such an interesting character and she's so layered and she doesn't always make the best choices and she has a past of being self-destructive you know I'm gonna be very careful about any spoilers but you know with with the band and she's had an affair and she's she's just got quite a past (laughs) and she's she's been through so much you know with her her parents were not the happiest about her coming out and the same with her brother and she's got a lot of issues with with her family and you know there's there's you know so many themes that you explored beautifully which were like grief and shame and how they sort of fester in a person and and what that can do and the the lasting impact that has and how that informs like their later choices and it's what I was saying earlier about how she kind of it seems that she goes from like one extreme to the next you know she she has this past of like you know she was knocking back whiskies like there's no tomorrow and you know making these poor choices and then she goes from that to being like it's almost like yeah, I'm still not going to deal with any of this. I'm just going to go and become a nun. And <laughs> so it's like, yeah, okay, you're doing something great now, but you're still not dealing with <laughs> all of these problems. <laughs> exactly. <just> going... <laughs> but she's such she's such an unforgettable character, and Thank I'm just you. really grateful that you wrote her. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you. I, you know, it's in way playing with that trope of like, get thee to a nunnery. <laughs> <laughs> or just the ways that we, you know, and I and just I think the human the human mammal. <laughs> We look for either refuge or solace or escape, whether it's in daydreams or work addiction or other people. And, and it makes sense because life is really hard. Life can be really gorgeous and almost viciously beautiful, and it can be really difficult and really challenging. And you know, addiction is something that I try to reimagine in the book as well, because in some ways she's a bit addicted to religion and she's a bit addicted to stress. Structure, but she's trying to do good things with it, and even as she's griping and complaining about her students and, and the other nuns in the convent. So I try not to cast a bit of, I mean, I guess I do, judgment through the eyes of the character. Just sort of taking one idea like religion or school Mm. and just showing that, you know, it can launch people in these dramatically different directions. So I'm I'm a a huge advocate of finding pathways for ourselves into institutions like school, teaching, Mm. work, purpose values like in the United States we we have this horrific horrific acceleration of both legislation and divisive damaging rhetoric hmm. asked and explored you know anti-choice I'm I'm not sure if this is like <laughs> political fair game in a book you know a conversation about books but what I'm in the book I'm trying to sh- showcase that everybody has a unique story to tell and a unique relationship with you know the, the cross that she wears around her neck mm-hmm. or the tattoos that adorn her body and that making snap judgments about people and then even leveraging what people think of as like a value to divide it's just it's never going to work and you know what we see here in the US is that we ha- we're the queer community we want more intersectional stories we want more amplification of voices and so i I try to like you know bring a lot of these state of the nation polemics into the into the book while keeping it fun strange rock and roll and you know a bit of a you know kind of a i don't know like an fu to the power structure but also keeping it artful and keeping it inquisitive and not you know necessarily over architecting how to feel but just giving these characters who are wading through all of these waters and making mistakes and you know it's i feel particularly proud and it's so grateful to gillian to zando for giving me the you know to pushkin press in the uk and ireland to giving the platform for for telling queer stories and thinking about that and you know honestly that is is part of just the driving impetus behind the character and you know again like this even going back to your question about the the covers like it's all it's all these, these you know fires that are just keeping me like back going back to the blank
0: page and i think you're so right like it's so important that we amplify these stories and I really really want to speak to you about obviously with Sister Holiday a huge part of her identity is her queerness and I think that's what I found hugely exciting about a a novel set in a a Catholic school and as holiday is a nun you know that was I don't think I've ever seen a queer nun represented in fiction before maybe I've missed that but (laughs) this is certainly a first (laughs) and I often sort of discuss the I don't know what the right word is maybe dichotomy between between religion and and queerness um with my with my friend who is a queer writer um, she she wrote a play it's an amazing play about the church as a system and the sort of trauma that it's inflicted on women and on queer people you know historically and it's just something that i feel really passionate about and i i wanted to kind of ask and i hope you don't mind me asking um what your relationship is to to faith and to the catholic church and and why it was important for this story to come from a queer perspective
1: yeah and I really appreciate that question and I want to re- I want to see your play too what's the name
0: of it it's called pure oh i love that title Mm, because of um all of the the awful issues with purity rings and the fact that she was given those at the age of 11 and it's just there's a whole bucket of worms or whatever you would call it it's yeah it's a kind of worms not bucket of worms
1: (laughs) (laughs) well i i have you know an interesting relationship with with faith and with i guess you'd say structured or in institutional mm-hmm. faith in this in the sense that i was raised catholic i was raised a uh, maronite catholic which is the catholicism of lebanon syria palestine but you know in the us the diaspora my great grandparents etc so it's very much like roman catholic faith and it's under the papal authorities and then i and i did attend a catholic school until i was i believe 13 for eight years so in the u.s at kindergarten through eighth grade and i was baptized i was i had my first holy communion and my confirmation interestingly sidebar all of those involve wearing almost bridal gowns like what's up with that you know creepy. White, frilly, like, whoa, you know, let's really reevaluate mm-hmm. a lot of the visual semiotics and the meanings of all of this. Yeah. So I I never felt the call personally. My family is quite religious. I have a family member who's a deacon in the Maronite church. I used to read, you know, the first holy readings during service and mass. I never felt the call though. I would sit in the pews and I would look around at the stained glass and <laughs> love that. And I loved the high camp theatricality of it. Mm. Gowns and gold and, you know, the chanting and the music and the incense that just knocked you out with its intensity, frankincense and myrrh. I was like totally down for all of that. <laughs> and I loved that, the community aspect of it. and And, you know, it brings people it brought my family and still does bring my parents and my family a tremendous amount of comfort and mm-hmm. and yet for more than 2,000 years this institution has wrought tremendous pain and damage and you know forcibly removed indigenous kids from families in the in the US and Canada are in the res schools you know we see the trail of destruction in, in Ireland with the, the laundries mm-hmm. anywhere you go. You know you bam whoa, like priest abuse and all of that. Nuns complicit. I wanted to tell a different story where I don't cast a kind of one script on the story of being someone who is both, is yes and yes, they are queer. And yes, they are Catholic. Because again, I think it's just really important to write personal entry point into it. And as a narrative exploration, I think that's fascinating. But I wanted this character to have both a passionate commitment to herself as a queer person Mm -hmm. defining that for herself and what that means because no one can tell you how to be queer and no one can i mean i don't personally believe no one can tell you how to believe in a higher power and so maybe that would automatically make me an iconoclast and would automatically eject me from catholic church but they're just to me and i say this again with a tremendous amount of respect these are just batches of stories whether it's you know the old testament there's these are stories and for some people for this character it is real like Mm this transubstantiation it is real for her and it is real for my family and for people and and it is inside of me Mm -hmm. because I was raised with this faith so this was reparative this was a reparative measure for me to write this character now when I go by and I walk by a catholic church and I just think of sister holiday and in some ways (laughs) like she's repaired a lot of catholic trauma that I've had because she believes and she's in some ways a bridge Mm -hmm. between world that I felt very othered from and felt a lot of pain with and and I try to bring in a lot of que- queer and camp love and affection you know with her and her character in some ways, she thinks of her own brother as kind of a gay Jesus and <laughs> you know and, and he, he shows up big time in book two and just in the same way that camp is like high stylized and in is a vital part of queer expre- expression and the kind of a Susan Sontag sort of a way I think like when I think of movies like Sister Act or you know ways that we've built storytelling around nuns Mm -hmm. it all feels very celebratory and also it holds space for institutional critique so she's a real she's really devout she genuinely believes Mm -hmm. no one can take that away from her and and yet you know she's also like super 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 queer you know like kind of a gold star lesbian and no one can take that away from her so <laughs> she she's just doing her own thing she's marching to the beat of her own drummer and and I think it's just you know for me an, ex- an experience of of like a sleuth that just kind of keeps everybody on their toes for mm. just living a life that she for for whatever reasons feels like she wants to authentically live
0: absolutely and i just i love the way you've just spoken about that and it just seems that anybody that's had sort of a religious upbringing has had you know that kind of not sure where they sit with it you know either people are straight away devout but i mean most of them i'm not making any sense now <laughs> but I was speaking to the same
1: <laughs> it's just, it's... It's, just it's... it's tough to talk about sometimes. yeah
0: it's really complex and I was having this conversation with my my friend the other day and you know it's the same friend that I mentioned before and she was saying you know there's a huge difference between she was she was basically asked about you know how can she she still you know believe in all of this when she's a queer person and she was kind of like well like there's I can separate like my faith and my relationship with God is private and that's for me and that's between me and me and my god but it's the whole sort of patriarchal structure of like the church and the that whole system that's the thing that she can't get behind and that's the thing that she kind of lost trust in it's not she never lost faith it's that she lost trust in that and that's like a two separate things and i think it's sort of similar with sister holiday i mean obviously she works within that system but you still get a sense of like her faith is like her private thing and that's the thing that's brought her comfort and it's she's sort of separated the two if that makes sense
1: Absolutely. And I love, I love the way you describe that through your friend and, and through art. And again, we, yeah, I feel like the, the more we try to to just hold space for what feels right and, mm-hmm. and healing for us or, or life giving or vital is, is a beautiful thing, you mm-hmm. know, and and I, I applaud folks who kind of go against the grain, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that, and it makes for really interesting art because I, I love to see the the new within the familiar. So again, like with a mystery or with with the genre in general, I think that it makes for great territory, like almost really interesting fertile territory. And so in, in my contribution with like a gold-tooth <laughs> hair trigger temper, fisticuffs nun who also believes in transubstantiation, you know, that's that's kind of my where I'm sitting <laughs> right now.
0: Now, I really want to talk to you as well about the the setting of the novel. Now, it's set in New Orleans, and you definitely get a real sense of your passion for the city. And whilst for me, I know very little about New Orleans and have probably seen very little. It's not a place that's necessarily represented very much apart from, you know, Hurricane Katrina. That's probably the extent of my knowledge of New Orleans and you know you definitely you touch on that in the book of Hurricane Katrina and you you see the lasting impacts of that horrendous tragedy but I'd love to know aside from Hurricane Katrina I'm sure there's much more to New Orleans than that and you definitely sort of go into that in the book but could you describe why why New Orleans, it was important to set your novel in New Orleans and, and what you wanted to represent of that city Thanks
1: for picking up on that because I think setting is so crucial within mm. crime fiction and whether it's the Saint Mary Mead of uh <laughs> Miss Marple and Christie or you know the the CD seductive LA of Chandler or whatever it might be setting I take very seriously and I want it to be its own protagonist and for me it's like it is more about the understory and writing different on-ramps into understanding what place can be for characters so in new orleans you know you have this cultural almost vandalized narrative of like free wheeling you know laissez-faire um carnival mardi gras and that is all true like yes it, it totally you know you can it's called like i don't even know open like you can just grab a drink and just sort of walk around with like an open can like With alcohol and like their big drink is like that you can get on bourbon streets called the Hurricane, which is like a (laughs) funny, you know, dance with fate. But you have the, the life urge and the death urge, the Eros and the Thanatos, you know, right at play in this place. It's on the Gulf. In my opinion, it is the most important city in the United States more than New York or LA and I wanted to really give it give it its its space to to have that dripping kind of humid warmth that's very expansive mm. but then also underneath so the questions of like what is under the surface and what is in the shadows and with this character as she's walking she's constantly feeling like these eyes on her and that is this whether it's paranoia or legitimate kind of creates this texture that to me is just inextricably linked with with new orleans which is a place of texture a place of contour a place Mm -hmm. of contradictions in life and it's about life after the destruction so it has a lot of its own expertise with resilience and music it's the birthplace of jazz so in some ways if it's the birthplace of jazz it's the birthplace of improvisation so i was like okay here's this character She kind of takes cherry bomb to her life in New York and she goes to New Orleans. So it's like New York to New Orleans, rebirth in her own right. And there's also that liturgical element of like, you know, restarting one's life in a way that is aligned with some of the Catholic tenets. So New Orleans was the perfect place. Mm. And, you know, the fact that she's a musician, she's a guitarist in this post-punk band and music connects her old life and her new life. And so in a place like New Orleans, in the early part of the book, as she's being punished, which she is a lot, her job is to clean the stained glass. And she discovers that if she presses her eye to this one part of the, this big stained glass piece, which inevitably is the eye of, of Mary, Mother Mary. So you can actually see the city below So the city itself is like her canvas too. So it's like my canvas as the author, but it's like her canvas. So it really is just this mysterious place. And I wanted these like kind of layers of mystery, like as you talked about her tattoos, which I'm glad you picked up on. Like it's her way of becoming a text because she's got all tatted up and so people if her scarf falls or if her gloves fall off because her mother superior requires her to cover herself then people notice and they try to decipher her and same with new orleans people see it in certain ways it's almost like a little war shock test for all the characters
0: mm. i love what you said about the tattoos then as well i think tattoos are such a huge form of expression and it's sort of a reclaiming the, the sort of narrative of yourself and i just love i loved that she was a tattooed queer nun i think <laughs> I loved so much about her and I think just hearing you talk about New Orleans if I if the book hadn't already made me want to go I think like I'm fully ready now to just go book myself a ticket <laughs> it sounds amazing Do a sister I...
1: holiday walking tour
0: yes oh my gosh can we make this happen please <laughs> <laughs> um, have, I... a pair of bookends sister holiday walking tour <laughs> Stunning. That is perfect. I have just seen the time and I'm so upset because I could probably talk to you for about three hours about this book. I uh, had many other questions, but I would love to squeeze one in. I have read that the TV and film rights have already been sold and our listeners will probably be rolling their eyes right now because... They know how much I love an adaptation. I have been begging Lydia to let me do an adaptation series for the longest time on the podcast, and she's still not let me. But I need to know, are you allowed to give any details whatsoever about this? No? Uh,
1: <laughs> we are so close. I, I, I truly, oh, if it's, oh gosh, a week or two from now. But honestly, I am. I'm so excited to share with your community. So whoever's listening, like we will, I will personally like do a, I will tell everyone you know as, as soon as we get the clearance to, yes. to share there's actually a writer's strike right now in the United States but there's going to be really exciting news coming very soon and it's truly again I just feel like I've won the cosmic lottery here because just you know I was writing this work without any you know hope or whatever publication this is the biggest bonus of all and so I also love screen adaptations of books. Mm. Like, I love Sharp Objects, the screen adaptation of Gillian Flynn's book. and I yeah, haven't watched
0: I, the adaptation of that. Okay, It's really different, and it is, it,
1: yeah, it, it breaks a lot of the temporal plane, and, you know, but, I, and she wrote a couple of the episodes, and I think they're really stellar. But, yeah, they're... I would love I think that'd be a great series Lydia come on
0: <laughs> honestly yeah. maybe maybe when this comes out she might let me she might be like okay you've touched my arm now yeah I absolutely cannot wait to to see what, what happens sense? with this <laughs> um and when I know I'm slightly impatient because this has only just come out like a month ago in the UK but when when's the next book
1: Yep. <laughs> yeah Blessed, blessed water, and it will take. It takes place over Good Friday, Saturday, and Easter Sunday. And I, you will be happy to know it is the exact same length as this fine book here, and it is what designed is it? to be devoured in one train ride. Yes, <laughs> that's a whole other story. But yeah, it takes. It's it's. It'll be out in the spring, twenty twenty
0: four. Amazing. I'm very impatient for this, and I already love the the metaphors that i can feel with the whole easter weekend i love it i love it i love your writing i love you <laughs> i oh, wish I could chat to you forever i loved this book listeners please go and buy it it is out now in the uk and the us and ireland and uh i believe it's being published in australia on the 30th of may is that right Yep. and 30th it's May. Awesome. and it's going to be out in brazil Poland and somewhere else this year In France and hopefully some more soon <laughs> yes all of the places but I will uh, pop a link in the show notes for our UK and US and Ireland listeners so they can go grab your book and then they can devour it like I did and then hopefully enjoy this conversation as much as I have and I'm really sad to let you go Margot thank you so so much for joining me
1: it's just an absolute thrill I, I'm so excited to. this will like live in my head for a long 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 time so thank you <laughs> so much and thanks to everyone who's listening and watching whenever that might be
0: no thank you so much and um can our listeners find you on social media
1: yes i'm terrible at social media but i do (laughs) i've been trying to make more of an effort i am on instagram at neon margot. that's margo with the t and then on on twitter despite my great efforts to get off of it (laughs) but i love connecting with readers wherever you are so yeah, send me a, send me a line, and uh, I'll, when I check it twice a week. <laughs> <I> will- <laughs> I will sincerely like love to connect
0: with you there. Yes. And listeners, if you do buy the book, which we're hoping that you will, please do tag us with any of your thoughts so we can keep this conversation going. Margot, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And until next time, please come back for your next book. <laughs> you know it. You know it. <laughs> thank you listeners for listening. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe as it helps to boost us in the charts. And if you want to give us a follow, you can do do so at a pair of bookends pod on instagram and at a pair of bookends on twitter and tiktok thank you so much for listening goodbye